Recorded live. All right. Good evening, everybody. Wednesday, January 20th, 2016, and we are here tonight with Mr. Bob Schaefer. Good evening, Bob. Good evening. So we're going to, well, first of all, let me say that this uh, conference call is being brought to you by youhavetheright.com, where I have most of these conference calls edited and archived by subject, and we also have coaching services available, including Bob Schaefer and John Gorla. So if you get the chance, you've got problems you want to deal with, foreclosure, land issues, yeah. taxes, debt. Third week, I mean, the fourth week, it's the first week of April, the second week, you know what I mean? Alright, whatever. Um, so, go to youhavetheright.com. Why are you youhavetheright.com? So, uh, um, oh, we just lost Daniel. Oh, well. Alright, so Bob, uh, take it away. Okay, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Uh, we'll be talking about court procedures uh, for the next couple of weeks and tonight, uh, but intermingled in between is some common uh, law um, information that's definitely very related to the court system. A lot of people will use the words, uh, well, you can't do that. That's violation of the law of the land, and they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what the law of the land is. Uh, they hear it a lot. Um, or they'll say, well, that's the law. Well, maybe it's not. There's a, there's a hierarchy of laws. And uh, the higher the law, the more important it is. Just like there's a hierarchy of offices. Uh, the guy that's working the counter is below the guy in the back office. He's below the uh, board of supervisors which is below the uh, governor. So the higher you go up, the more important people you meet or the more important laws you'll get. Now, with laws, there are two basic law systems on planet Earth. In other words, not just America. It's the law of the land and the law of the sea. I used to tell people if you could step back in space far enough and look back at the Earth, you'd see the two surfaces that represent those two basic law systems land and sea. About 20 years ago, I was able to buy a poster that showed this, what I'm talking about. Somebody had taken thousands of photographs and they were able to merge them together and get rid of all the clouds. The clouds moved around, so then when they were over here, they could now get a good photograph of uh, land over there. So when I do a seminar, uh, I bring this poster and I show people here's the two basic law systems, the law of the land and the law of the sea. Now, until in, in America, the uh, law of the land started and stopped at the mean or average high tide mark on the coastline of America. Now, if a cliff goes down into the ocean, then that, that um, property line is straight up and down. But if it's a beach that uh, is very shallow, uh, that line can move around. Um, but the mean or average high tide mark is at a certain place. But the American law of the land says that 
whoever owns the land on the beach has to give you permission to use the land that is at sea on the other side of that main high tide mark. So when the tide is out, you, you have a big beach that's all yours. The owner of the land above that, he owns out to that high tide mark. <clears throat> it's not a storm high tide. It's just the average high tide. Now with, with the um, rivers um, or lakes, originally Congress said you own, if it's a navigable river or navigable lake, you own to the um, high water mark. And then they changed that to the low water mark so, could, so that you could put your dock out there and uh, use your, get, get to your boat. And uh, <clears throat> so sometimes things change. Um, with the land patent, you own to the center of the sky and the center of the earth. And um, I'm using that in a court case right now where the Army Corps of Engineers um, bought an easement on, along the coast of the Columbia River in Oregon and Washington so they could park their water up on people's land because they were going to put in a dam and the water would raise. And then they, these people lived there for about 20 years. They had a dock and a boat and a gazebo and a hot tub, and it was just a good life. And then the Army Corps of Engineers came along and said, "Well, you can't do that. You're messing up with the uh, the mating of the of the fish." Well, wait a minute. They have uh, their boat takes maybe 20 feet, and the the river is about 500 feet wide right there. Uh, what what's the what's the chances of that ever happening? Besides that, these people own to the edge of the original. The low water mark of the Columbia River, which is out about 30 miles from the bank right now. So their dock and their boat is parked on above their land. They own the center of the earth and the center of the sky. So until 1844, the law of the land and the law of the sea met at this average high tide mark on the coastline. And now in Great Britain, wherever a ship could float, it was under the law of the sea, even though it was inland. So in 1844, American Congress passed a law that said, well, we're going to let that ship captain maintain, maintain law of the sea, control over his ship, his crew, the passengers and cargo to the end of the voyage. So they passed a law that allowed the law of the sea to come inland. Uh, I have, in my 9,000 law books, I have two sets of cases case law from 1658 to 1896, and I was looking under admiralty law at one time, and I found an old case in the Mississippi River where a ship went down in a big sandbar, and they had to know which window to take this case to in the American court system, because the American court system has always had a law of the land window and a law of the sea window. The law of the sea window was used for, usually for harbor type problems and um, contract, uh, uh, you know, shipping across the sea and stuff problems. And so this presented a new problem. This is a, a ship, a, a seagoing vessel, but it's it's now encased in a sandbar. 
on the inside of the, uh, at that time, the law of the land um, border. And it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court where they said this is a law of the land issue because they had not passed that 1844 law yet. And it was above the average high tide mark. Uh, and therefore, it was under the law of the land. Well, so when somebody says, well, you're violating the law of the land, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're violating the law of the sea that has now been brought inland. Now, there's, so there's two basic law systems on the planet. There's two basic courthouses on, on uh, American soil. The, uh, the federal United States District Court system, and then there's the state court system. Now, in, in, uh, until the turn of the uh, century, the state court system uh, would be like uh, police courts, municipal courts, superior courts, courts of appeal, state seat from Supreme Court. The, um, and they both have law of the land and law of the sea jurisdiction. So this can get confusing to people. So you've got to keep track of where, where you are so you don't make mistakes in front of a judge. Then under the United States court system, They've had the uh, federal district court, the United States district court, and the district court of the United States. Notice the word district is in there. And that comes from the District of Columbia. So they're all related to the District of Columbia. And then, see, the government goes real slow. They kind of learn as they go. And so they get caught up in time. So, and by the way, there was a change. Whenever time there was a, a, a name change in the court, there was a reason for it. There's always a reason for everything when it comes to government. It, it didn't it didn't happen uh, easily. So the uh, the um, law of the sea uh, can be had in the United States District Court. Now, I like the United States District Court, even though there's a lot of stuff on the internet now that says it doesn't exist, but it does. I mean, it's, you can use it. Uh, I don't like going into the state court because they're they're I say in bed with with the uh, cities and the counties. You can never win in the uh, state court in Los Angeles if you're going to sue the city of Los Angeles. Nobody ever has. And the judges, you know, they're supposed to be neutral. But they're not. They get bought off. The IRS pays judges under the table. The, the counties and the cities pay judges under the table. They don't pay it that way, but they donate heavily to their petty cash and for their slush funds. And I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. In some cases, it's just tens of thousands of dollars. And it's like you see it my way, uh, and uh, your, your slush fund is going to grow really nice. But you see, since the turn of the century, uh, 2000, the uh, state, the um, county courts became state courts. And uh, for a while, they had what they called consolidated courts. They, they wanted to get rid of a municipal court and uh, go to a superior court. But it was kind of a combination for a few years. Now, <clears throat> an interesting thing I have, I have documentation that this was the consolidated courts was brought about by President Bush, number one. 
he he wanted the courts to be the consolidated courts. So wait a minute, this is a state court we thought. Well, now we know that the state courts are uh, United States courts with a with a state court heading. We call, I call them federal uh, corporate. It goes back to the Act of 1871 when <clears throat> Washington D.C. was incorporated into the uh, with a new name, United States Incorporated, or United States Inc., or just plain the United States. And uh, that entity is represented at the United Nations, by the way. If you look at our representative at the United Nations, it does not say United States of America. And it just says United States. Now, most people think it's the same thing. Um, most people think that, for instance, uh, San Bernardino County is the same thing as the county of San Bernardino. But uh, there's a, um, in the... Uh, administrative office of the San Bernardino Superior Court, they, they at one time had a copy table book that showed the photographs of all the original courthouses. It was it was really neat. You can look back and see all these old-style courthouses. And then at the front, if you have an index, so you can go down and see if you want to look at the Kern County Courthouse, that might be on page 37. But every one of the courthouses was the name of the area first, and then um, the the word county after that. So there would be like Los Angeles County, San Diego County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County, Kern County. There's 53 counties in California. Well, where did the county of San Bernardino and the county of Los Angeles, all those county ofs come about? And a lot of people think, well, it's just the same thing. It is not. And and I just found the original charter for the county of San Bernardino of 1912. So you see, San Bernardino County split off of West San Diego County in 1853. And so the San Bernardino County has been alive and well since 1853. In 1912, the county of San Bernardino was chartered. There was a reason for everything. Remember, every time the government says something, there was a reason for it. And they don't tell you. Now we have uh, county vehicles driving around that say um, county of San Bernardino code enforcement. Well, wait, San Bernardino County is involved in any code enforcement. Um, so that's where we are. We are in the old original underlying. Now, as a contractor with four state contractors license classifications for many, many years, uh, I did. You know, I didn't know any better. I had I paid for these licenses. I had I was licensed, bonded, insured. Uh, I bought city licenses. If I was going to work in a city, I'd buy their license. And I never had any disciplinary action taken after me. But in 1981, when the city of San Bernardino uh, went around a federal restraining order, and with the corruption and with the help of the superior court. They destroyed my hotel. It was a beautiful four-story, long, L-shaped building with a commercial building in front with two big, massive courtyards, palm trees, balconies. It was absolutely beautiful. Now the historic people, they're really sorry it's gone. And I did what I could to keep it, but I didn't know what I know now. And I think if I would have known then what I know now, that building would be up and running Best Western Hotels was going to pay me and my father a monthly fee to, to rent it from us, and then they would run it as a hotel. 
And so um, that kind of stuff happens. Actually, they picked on the wrong guy. I was happy running my four state contracts with licenses with the retail store with branches in five towns with a crew of 28 and just, you know, contracting and producing goods and services. Um, people would wait for for me. I mean, I, I was roofing mobile homes. I would have 110 jobs sold that I couldn't get to for maybe two months because my 28 people were busy on uh, 10 other ones, and we had to get them finished before we went into others. And we have a reputation of being the highest-priced roofer in town, but you got your money's worth. When everybody else's roof would fail in a year or two, mine would last for 30 years. I'm I'm saying 30 years. Now they last even longer because I've upgraded the products better. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, what they did to me with the hotel, it was very unproductive because I was putting a lot of money into taxes. I was paying my employer withholding um, percentage and collecting, you know, I paid my secretaries to take money out of the employees. Well, they the state didn't pay us anything to do all that. <clears throat> so when I started studying law, uh, I started studying in 1968 to get a real estate license because the mobile home service was like the buggy whip business. It was just going downhill. <clears throat> and then I got real serious about studying law in 1981. And I realized I had a right to contract. I don't need the government's privilege. They can jerk you around without privilege. You know, do you want your, your your license to be revoked or suspended? Then we can nail you for contracting with a revoked or suspended license. And I never had any disciplinary action taken against them. So uh, I said, wait a minute. If if I if I do a, a customer, uh, you know, a bad deal, they have access to the uh, courthouse. They don't need the contractor's license board to interest interrupt. So it was just a control thing. So I've been a very proud, unlicensed contractor now for about 30, 35 years, 34 years. <clears throat> and I still contract, and I contract for big money. So I use my knowledge for, um, and, and this is this is a little side story, but it deals with courtrooms and the threat of courtrooms. Um, I had a contractor's license board gentleman stop at my office and and uh, I invited him in, had him sit down. He said, Mr. Schaefer, you cannot contract without a license. And I said, I don't charge enough money for a license. I can charge up to $800 for, without having a license for certain to your rule. So I pulled out a contract for some earthquake stabilization that I did on a former employee's house, that she, a mobile home that she was inheriting, and she had all this money coming in, and her her inheritance didn't get there after she gave me a check. And so so he showed me this contract, 3150 bucks. And uh, I looked at it, and I just told him I want a contract for more than $800. And uh, I said, well, show me the dollar sign. He looked for it, and he said, it's not there. I said, well, I, I know the difference between a dollar and, uh, and a Federal Reserve note. I don't charge people in dollars. I can charge up to $800. And right now it's uh, I think twenty four to one. So you multiply that out. That's a pretty big contract. If if they will even do that, but I don't charge dollars anyway. So leave me alone. So I said to I said, well, define a dollar for me. So he pulled out a Federal Reserve note. I said, that's not a dollar. He said it says a dollar on it. I said that's a note. That's an IOU. It's a note, just like you have a note on your mortgage. 
it's an evidence of a debt. It's an evidence of a national debt. That's not a dollar. So I pulled out a silver dollar, and I showed him this is a dollar, and I don't get these when I do this work. Anyway, he just got up and walked out and never came back. And they, they just know better because that's the golden rule answer. I, I don't need a contractor's license, and the customers don't need me to be licensed because they have access to the courts. If I do them a bad job, I won't let them sue me. I'll take care of them. I take care of my my reputation. That's why my reputation was so, was so good and it was still good. <clears throat> I just re-roofed a triple-wide mobile home in Palm Springs <clears throat> with a two-car garage without a city license, without a state contractor's license. And, uh, and then I did a neighbor's double-wide mobile home at the same time. That was just um, about two months ago. And they're all happy. <clears throat> they're all happy, and that's what I do. I keep my people happy. In fact, when I had the licenses, I, I had a seamless aluminum gutter machine. I could make an aluminum gutter 500 feet long if I ever needed that. And uh, I was putting seamless aluminum gutter up on the regional director of the contractor state license for his home in Redlands, California, the top guy. And we were standing out there watching the guys work, work the machine. It was in an old antique wire wheel trailer I have. And, and they were carrying it over and taking it up ladders and uh, mounting it. And he made a statement to me. He said, you know, Mr. Schaefer, if all my if all my contractors, and I was one of his contractors at the time, he said, if all my contractors dealt with the public like you do, I wouldn't have a job. Now, that's a real compliment coming from the regional director. This is a guy that's the head of the whole region, many, many counties, <clears throat> to make that statement, and I'm pretty proud of that, and it's true. Um, I would never give anybody a, a reason to complain. So anyway, that uh, by having these righteous arguments that state you keep out of court, I mean, they set up sting operations to get not, uh, unlicensed contractors, and they... And they, it gets all over the news, and they send a message to everybody, you better be careful. <clears throat> and you see, I can beat all that stuff. And they know that, and that's why they, they tend to want to leave me alone. Because, But when, when they remember in, in the seminar, we talked about the best defense is a good offense. That was said by Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers. But you see, that statement is good on the battlefield and in the courtroom. So they all know that I will sue them if they mess with me. I will re remove this to the United States District Court with a notice of removal, and with a notice of removal, it is removed, whether they like it or not. You have to answer to the United States District Court now. It's gone, and you can make a motion to remand, but that's going to take some time, and I've got arguments to keep it over there. So they don't get their bottom-paid-for state judge anymore in my situation. So a notice of removal is a wonderful tool. So uh, another thing is right now, it's a really good time in the history of America to be suing government and judges. And they, when I sue them, they know they deserved it. Because I, I document it. You're the guy that took the oath of office to uphold the Amendment Constitution for the United States of America. You're the one that took uh, Article 6, Paragraph 2, which says this Constitution and all laws made pursuant thereto 
and all treaties made or which shall be made shall be the supreme law of the land. Well, wait a minute. We're talking about hierarchy of laws, aren't we? The supreme. This is higher than your little municipal code or your ordinance way down there. I'm working way up there, and I'm protected by God. Constitution. This is constitutionally guaranteed and secured to me. And I'm going to hold your feet to your fire of your oath of office. Um, this just happened today. One of my clients called me and said, uh, we've got a sheriff at the door. He's pounding on the door, and there's <clears throat> a, a dog catcher. They want, want to take my dogs, and <clears throat> going on and on. And during the course of the conversation, the sheriff said to the code enforcement people, all these constitutionalists, it's, it's never easy with a constitutionalist. Well, that's right. And you guys are all constitutionalists, too, because you you swore an oath to uphold and defend that constitution. And now here you are out here trying to exercise some kind of an ordinance without a Fourth Amendment warrant. Um, the code enforcement check said, well, we, we don't... We don't bother with that. Well, really, now we're going to have a little educational lawsuit coming out where you're going to learn that you better better look into that. Now, you see, the Fourth Amendment says, says that they, have, they, they can't mess with you unless there's an affidavit of probable cause. Now, in 1789, this is why history is so important, 1789... And in 1791, when it was actually ratified by all the states and became effective against everybody, the term probable cause did not reference any legislated criminal activity. In other words, it only referenced really bad in itself common law crimes like murder, rape, arson, treason, kidnapping, mayhem, Really bad stuff. It was bad before anybody said there ought to be a law against that. So this is why it's important to read every word in a law and analyze it and look at it from every angle. So in other words, the Fourth Amendment says that I have the right to be secure in my person, houses, papers, and effects unless they have an affidavit of probable cause of a mens re common law felony. Not some, uh, you didn't license your dogs, little ordinance. Now, those kind of warrants, and they have a warrant for that, called an administrative law warrant. Well, then the question becomes, how do you get under, see, if you're not under something, you're above it, aren't you? Well, nobody wants to hear anybody say, I'm above that law, but wait a minute. In on July 4, 1776, Roughly two and a half million former subjects of the King of England became sovereign American people. Well, today's government doesn't want to hear you say you're sovereign. Good night. You're you're a sub, you're subject to all these laws, and that's the way they're trained. And uh, you you guys are kooks if you think you're above all that law. So we have documents that we've created that hold our feet to that fire. Uh, that Fourth Amendment was never amended to include those statutory uh, men's prohibitor, thou shalt not do this or that, uh, violation of those little many uh, like ordinances and codes. No, uh, you can't come on my land with one of those administrative warrants, like a search warrant for that, 
you can only come on my land if I'm accused of some major common law felony, like the ones we just mentioned. So um, I told my friend, get a picture of them, get a picture of the license plate on their cars, get their names and their badge numbers, and then when they leave, you go over to the office. I'm telling you how you set this up for your court procedure. You go over to their office and you you say, I, I want to, I, I'm ready to pay for a, a certified copy of their oath of office and their bond. I want a copy of their bond. I need to know who's going to identify me for my injuries that I just suffered today. But they don't have a bond. A lot of Governments now are so broke, they're self-bonded, which means, well, oh, now I get to go after that big Herculean fire engine. I, I want that fire engine. So if I need, if I if I get a big judgment, you don't have a bond that, that covers my injury, then I get the fire engine. So try to try to look at everything as a good thing rather than, well, they're not bonded. That means I can't get anything. Oh, yes, you can. There was a, in Tucson, Arizona, there was a guy got a big judgment against the city of Tucson. And he he tried to collect, and he couldn't collect. And so he went back to before the judge, and he drugged the city attorney in, and uh, he said, uh, Your Honor, uh, I can't I can't get any any money out of my judgment here. And they keep saying they don't have any money. They're self-bonded, and they don't have anything. And the judge looked at the city attorney. Now, this was about 25, 30 years ago. This is a whole story, but it's stuck in my mind really well. The judge says, uh, let, me, let me get something understood here. You will raise the money for this man for this judgment. This is not a bad judgment. It's a good judgment. You will raise the money or I will raise the money. I will sell your fire engines. I will sell your city hall. I will sell your fire stations. I will, you have land all over. I will sell that. And for some reason, they were able to raise the money after they, the judge um, played hardball. I like the United States District Court. The United States District Court is really the people's court. They are, by law, they, they try to get you to hire an attorney. You know, you need, to, you need to hire an attorney. I'm not your attorney. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But they have to. In fact, I'm going to read you something here um, that's in the document I just created today. Um, in fact, in, in the uh, actions that we do, we, we, we want a common law action. And they're, they're not a common law. They're under the law of the sea. And so, you know, I've, I've done seminars for different people that would get up and tell people, well, you have a right to trial by jury, uh, you know, on the suits of the common law. Well, he didn't tell them that you have a right to trial by jury on the suits of the common law. He just said, you have a right to trial by jury. Read the, read the Seventh Amendment. You have a right. And the amount of controversy is more than $20. Well, he missed the first uh, few words there. And I'll read it to you. It says, this is the Seventh Amendment, in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, there's the D word, that's a dollar of silver, by the way, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved. There's nothing there that says you have a right to a jury trial. There's a big difference between an administrative law jury trial and a common law trial by jury. By the way, there's, there's going to be police officers and judges listening to this, and they learn too. I have a, a, a sheriff that's a very good friend of mine, and he he told my brother, uh, I really enjoy picking your brother's brain. He says, I, I kind of believe more the way your brother talks than the way we're trained. 
So anyway, a trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury. Now get a load of this. If you don't, if you want to get the thing over with, and not have to go up on appeal and just spend years at it and all that expense, you want a trial by jury because there's a and no fact tried by a jury. That's a, a trial by jury. Jury shall otherwise be reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Uh, there must be some kind of a, an appeal according to the rules of the common law. But, I, you know, after 35 years, I don't know where I can find those rules. They've got to be someplace, and maybe somebody can find those for me. But that's the only exception. So nothing can be, be reexamined in any court of the United States. In other words, the jury, it's over. And you see, the difference between a trial by jury and a jury trial is with a trial by jury, the jury judges both the law and the fact. The jury trial, the judge says, I will judge the law. You, the jury, will judge the fact. As soon as he says that, you know you didn't get your demanded trial by jury. You got a jury trial. And as soon as that, you know about that, you want to speak up and say, I'm giving my notice of interlocutory appeal. I demanded a trial by jury. I didn't get I didn't want a jury trial, and you just mentioned that you're going to judge the law. You see, in America, we have a system of checks and balances, and each legislative, executive, and judicial branch is in the first branch is the trial by jury. Each one can nullify a law. Now, these these people up in uh, Oregon that are sitting in prison right now, their attorney doesn't know what I know, or he have them out, because the judge in that case said, well, the fixed amount that was set by the legislature uh, is cruel and unusual punishment. So I'm going to, instead of putting you in jail for, or in prison for five years, I'm going to put the son in prison for one year and the father for three months. And they went and served us. The prosecutor, who doesn't know the law, went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which doesn't know the law, believe it or not, because they would have known this. And they're now serving the rest of the five years because they they got the Ninth Circuit to say, well, that the legislature fixed the amount, and the judge didn't have have the the authority to make that change. Oh yes, he did. That's the system of checks and balances. The judge just nullified what the what the uh, legislature did, and the legislature doesn't have any authority to be a judge instead of set a uh, a punishment, that's for the judge to decide. But you see, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing in the courtroom. And so they, they have all these things that they argue about. And But that would be the argument that I would present, is that that judge made a judicial determination that that, that fixed amount was cruel and unusual punishment, considering the facts. And, and by the way, from what I understand, I've read a lot on this, they wouldn't let them present their exculpatory evidence to the jury. Well, that's a violation of Fifth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment due process. Due process is is another word for notice and opportunity to be heard. Opportunity to be heard. They denied these people their opportunity to be heard, so they could present their exculpatory evidence and and the reasons why they they're not criminals. These are these are farmers. They're not criminals. You see, you can commit a criminal act and still not commit a crime unless you have criminal evil intent 
to commit an act that you know is a crime. Now, you put the two together, you've got a crime, but not until you put them together. So these people did what they, and then they, they've got this, the new, the new government, they want to make everybody terrorists now. So they convicted these people of being terrorists, and all they did was they set a backfire to keep a forest fire from going into this wet area that the birds were all coming to as they were traveling north, you know, back and forth. The birds landed in, in this beautiful pasture land, and they wouldn't go land into the bird sanctuary on the other side of the hill that the government set up. And so these guys were just taking care of, of the birds, but they've, they've got them sitting in prison for being terrorists. They say the jury did it. Well, they didn't have a, a, a trial by jury. They had it bought and paid for a jury trial. They they wouldn't seat anybody that knew these people. See, that's an administrative jury trial. You know the, the defendant, yes, you're out of here. But you see in a trial by jury, you read up on that, and it's a jury from the neighborhood, people that know him. Yeah, I know Bob. He's not a criminal. I've dealt with him for 40 years. Uh, yeah, we're going to nullify that law. That law doesn't apply here. So jury nullification is very important, but in a jury trial or an administrative law tribunal, they will, you know, when the jury is out, they say, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned jury nullification and I'll hold you in contempt. They won't let you put that out there. So we put it in the documents to start with, and then we demand that all the documents be, be read by the jury. So if you want to get it over with, you don't want this to be otherwise re-examined in any court. We want a trial by jury that makes the final decision. And then you all walk out. It's over. Now, in the documents, you see, when, I'm, when, when we're trying to get a, a comma, get things through the common law, we have to change things. There's a law of the sea. We have to change it to the law of the land. So in the document, we say it is the good faith intent of his name, to invoke the American law of the land, common law, also known as at law, constitutional court of record. Black law dictionary says a court of record proceeds with the common law. So we call it a court of record jurisdiction of this honorable court under Article 3, jurisdiction of the 1787-80 Constitution for the United States of America, not the later Constitution of the United States. It is also the good faith intent of plaintiff, his name, to demand and obtain a constitutionally valid Seventh Amendment common law slash at law trial by a jury of landowner peers pursuant to the mandates of the 1871 AD Seventh Amendment to the 1887 AD Constitution for the United States of America, wherein a jury judges both the law and the facts as the last in the American system of checks and balances against bad laws, and wherein the judge merely maintains the proper procedure. In other words, a federal corporate administrative tribunal, that's an ALT, jury trial, who judge only the facts is hereby rejected. So now you see, we, we set up reversible error. It's in the record what you demanded, and they didn't give it to you. If this, now this is really cool. If this honorable United States District Court is not such a constitutionally valid court of record, but merely a federal corporate administrative law tribunal, ALT, now that's the sense of the Act of 1871, which they are under, 
that's exactly what they are, the administrative law tribunal. So we're saying if you're merely one of those, demand is hereby made for this honorable court or tribunal, as the case may be, to transfer the instant Seventh Amendment action of law to such an intended and required Article Three Court of Records. Well, there is an Article Three Court of Records. It's the United States Supreme Court. And if you read all the stuff on that, you can go directly to the United States Supreme Court if the state is a party. So you want to make the state a party. It's very easy because the state usually is a party to all that stuff. So anyway, now I'm going to go down in this document that I just created. we 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 go after the attorneys. You know, you, they say, "Well, you're you're practicing law without a license." I've been attacked for that many times, and I always prevail because I point out, "Well, this attorney over here isn't isn't licensed by the state either." Now, so here's what we have: mandatory judicial notice of license for attorneys. Plaintiff, his name, pro se. Hereby, pro se means I'm in in proprietor. Persona uh, uh, hereby moves this honorable court. Now, see, this is in a court that you're suing them, so you've given them jurisdiction. If this was in a, uh, if you were defending, we wouldn't move anything. See, a motion, petition, application, or request gives that court jurisdiction. You don't want to give the court jurisdiction with a motion, petition, application, or request document. You make common law notices and demands. That's finger in the chest. I'm giving you notice, boy, and I demand this. So you're not you're not just saying please, pretty please, or give me this. You're saying do it. Okay. So in this case, we move this honorable court to take mandatory judicial notice pursuant to California Evidence Code 451. Now all states have very similar documents. So if you're in another state, you have to work it up. Of the following, please take notice that I have added all highlighting to make easier the viewing of the word license. See, the word license is related to a privilege. None of the listed requirements are in the instant record. In other words, the court is looking at this attorney as a, as a real attorney with a license. It's presumed. He wouldn't be here unless he was licensed. Well, wait a minute. There's nothing in the record that shows he's licensed. So I think I just go on the internet and look up the bar card. Oh, he's licensed. Here's his bar number. Wait a minute. Let's look at what the what the law says. California Business and Professional Code six zero six seven. Every person, okay, the word person is a privileged entity. So, so this is not one of the sovereign people that functions under rights. Way up there, above all laws. So those people, some of them step down, become a a, a citizen person, and so it says, every person on his admission shall take an oath to support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of whatever, and faithfully to discharge the duties of any attorney at law to the best of his knowledge and ability. And then it says these words, a certificate of the oath shall be endorsed upon his license. So if your bar card is a license, let's see where your certificate of the oath is endorsed upon your license. They don't have that. Okay, then it says, here's another one. This is a court case, Sims versus uh, Hearns. It says, a bar card is not a license. It is a dues card or a membership card 
A bar association is what it is. A club, an association, is not licensed. It has a certificate to the state. The two are not the same. It's pretty plain here. Now, these attorneys are going to get this tomorrow. I just put it in the mail earlier. They're not going to be real happy about this. California Rule of Court 9.4. In addition to the language required by Business and Professional Code Section 6067, the oath to be taken by every person, that's a privileged entity, on admission to practice law is to conclude with the following. And here's what it says. As an officer of the court, I will strive to conduct myself at all times with dignity, courtesy, and integrity. They don't do that. They try to hang you. They, their job is to put you away. California Business Code 145 says the legislature finds and declares, A, unlicensed activity in the profession and locations regulated by the Department of Consumer Affairs, a threat to health, welfare, and safety of the people of the state of California. B, the law enforcement agencies of the state should have sufficient, effective, and responsible means available to enforcing the licensing laws of the state. C, the criminal sanction for unlicensed activity should be swift, effective, appropriate, and create strong incentive to obtain a license. These attorneys don't have a license. They have a bar code. They're members of the union. Okay, now then, uh, I'm going to go down here to a different area. One of the good things that we can do now is be pro se litigants. In other words, I'm not representing myself. I'm not representing anybody. I'm defending myself. Representation is what somebody does, a third party does for, for somebody else. When you have an attorney, he represents you. You cannot represent yourself. This is the meaning of words. Representation is always for a third party. So, no, I'm not going to represent myself, but I'm going to defend myself. See, the Sixth Amendment, read it, read every word. You have the right to enjoy, excuse me, you have the right to defend yourself and to enjoy the assistance of counsel. I was helping another man today. He's not enjoying his, his, his counsel that was foisted on him by the court is laying him away. He's just part of the team. He's an officer of the court. He's beholding to his, this man's enemies. So, so I'm, I'm helping him dismiss the, the public pretender. He's dismissed. And this man is now claiming his right to defend himself with the assistance of counsel, any counsel that he may choose. And by the way, the term counsel, you don't have to be licensed to be counsel. See, the term attorney and lawyer are licensed entities. Counsel is not. The United States Supreme Court one time punished an attorney and removed him from the list of attorneys and put him on the list of counsels. <laughs> right there, it says, You've got a lower standing here, boy. You screwed up. Okay, pro se, pro per standard. Pro, per, pro se and pro per mean the same thing, but the, the case law uses the word pro se, so we use what, the, what they use. Plaintiff and his name hereby submit the pursuant to United States Supreme Court regarding Hayes versus Turner, 404 U.S. 119 at 125. 
what should be 121, in parentheses, 1972, pro se pro per pleadings may not be held to the same standard as government privileged lawyers and or attorneys. So you see, they have to, right here is a case from the United States Supreme Court, they've got to cut you some slack. And then it goes on and on. It's, uh, it says, uh, is to be considered pro se, pro per, also known as improper persona. Uh, this this uh, plaintiff submits that, and I'll skip all this, uh, Haynes versus Turner on the citation. And there's another one. Platsky, P-L-A-T-S-K-Y versus C-I-A. It's a federal case. Pro se litigants, complaints, pleadings, and other papers are exempt from dismissal regarding form and not substance. In other words, so I didn't get your form pursuant to your rules of court, and did, I didn't do it just right, but well, you've got to go look at the substance. Or did, did I have a gripe or not? I just didn't hold my mouth right saying it? Well, that's too bad. I don't have to. I'm not an attorney. I'm a pro se litigant. Here's another one. Pro se documents cannot be dismissed without the court providing the opportunity for the pro se litigant to correct the document. In other words, you don't you don't throw me out because I didn't say it right. You've got to give me a leave to correct it. Here's another one. The court must inform the pro se litigant of the petitioner's deficiency. He's got to show you how to fix it. Now, how cool is that? The court must instruct the pro se litigants on the necessary information for any needed correction. I didn't say that. The Supreme Court said that in two different cases. One in 1972, the other one doesn't have the date. The pro se litigant may introduce any evidence in support of his document. Now, these people up the Hammonds up in Oregon, they, they were denied this right. That's an appealable issue right there. They shouldn't be sitting in prison. They should be doing an, doing an appeal right now. And the same thing with the uh, the, the people over in, uh, in Idaho. Okay, then uh, it says, uh, hereby submits the, that the court errs if the court dismisses the pro se litigants' complaint without instruction as to how the pleadings are deficient and how to correct the pleadings. See, they, the, the, the federal court is not all... Perfect. They, they they have this rule 64 hearing that comes up, and you can't start, you cannot start discovery until they have that hearing, and that hearing is set up to try to get rid of you. They get a pile of papers every day, and they're trying to get rid of it. Justice is not important. Get rid of those cases. And this one case that I'm helping these people with, we sued the president and CEO of of a company. And the attorney, and this was over like about a $400 bill, but the guy that I'm working with, he just wants to make a name for himself. He, he, he said, they don't have any authority here. And um, let's go for it. So this president and CEO has probably spent in the neighborhood of $10,000 to get that three or $400. And he's still, and we're taking them all the way to Washington. They're going to spend a lot of thousands of dollars, a lot more than what, they've done so far uh let's see yeah we are and the court has the court has to tell you how to fix it you can't just throw me out because what what their motion the attorneys make a motion for uh for a um, summary judgment or a motion uh to throw this guy out because he didn't 
uh, say it right. You know, it didn't state a cause of action upon which relief could be granted pursuant to Rule 12.6b. And we feel it all the time. And they make that motion, by the way, even if you had an attorney, that's just the first effort, and that's just hoping that sticks, that the judge will throw you out. Well, hey, we've got case law here that says you can throw me out. And if you do, hey, you've got my notice of interlocutory appeal, or give you my verbal notice of interlocutory appeal, or give you my written notice of interlocutory appeal timing. Now, a lot of clerks don't, clerks don't know what an interlocutory appeal is. Well, they say, what's all this about? Well, Look on page two here of the Black Law Dictionary definition of an interlocutory appeal. We're not going to wait for the one final judgment rule to kick in. I could be sitting in prison three years from now when we might not even have to be going to trial. In the interest of judicial economy, we're going up on appeal right now. And they're stuck with it. They're stuck with their own laws. So anyway, um, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Uh, do we have any have any questions? All right, everybody. If you got any questions for Bob, hit star eight on your phone and raise your hand. <clears throat> okay, we got somebody from California. Go ahead, California. Hi, Bob. Great information, as, as always. Um, I've got pages, a couple pages of notes. I'm curious if you can revisit when the United States became, in, when the city of Washington became incorporated as the United States. Let, let, let me interrupt you just for a minute. If you're on a speakerphone, please go to a direct line and speak slowly. My hearing is really, really bad. Am I so on? I need you to speak very distinctly and off of a speakerphone. Yes, you're on, but you need to speak louder or oh, not speak. I just didn't hear. I heard you talking, but I didn't understand a single word. <clears throat> Go ahead. Okay. You spoke about when the United States became the United States Incorporated. Can you share more about that? Yeah, it's the Act of 1871. You see, government always goes real, real slow. In 1861, uh, the uh, congressmen, representatives from seven southern states, got up and walked out of Congress. Now, back in uh, school, they didn't tell us what I'm going to tell you right now. That actually killed the Congress. They didn't have a quorum anymore. They could adjourn without a quorum, but they could not reconvene. So President Lincoln knew that he didn't have one of the branches. He didn't have a three-branch branch government anymore. And then he got assassinated before he could do much. And so it took him a long time, but they came up with this corporation. And all the, the Congress people became officers in the corporation. And we haven't had a constitutionally valid government since 1861. So in 1871, they made a feeble effort to try to correct that, and they came up with the United States Incorporated. There's, I just saw this last week a picture of, of President Obama in front of a, a seal, and it said President of the United States. It did not say President of the United States of America. That's why he doesn't need to show his birth records, because he's not a, the President of the United States of America. 
He's the president of a, of a corporation, the United States, Inc. And you don't have to show birth rights and, and citizenship to be a president of a corporation. That's why he's getting away with it. But nobody's talking about our guy. I'm telling you how he's doing it. And he's doing it legally. So he's the president of the United States Incorporated. But you see, they don't say incorporated. For instance, Sears. We say, oh, I'm going to go shopping at Sears. Well, really, the original corporation was Sears Roebuck and Company. Or Sears Roebuck and Company or Incorporated. So we don't say, I'm going to go over to Sears Incorporated. We just leave off half of it. We're going over to Sears. Well, that's what they do with the government. Are you a citizen of the United States? A lot of people think they're saying they're a citizen of the United States of America. But after the 14th Amendment, which happened after 1871, that, that, uh, that uh, amendment was for the free slaves who, who did not have a right to live here in America. They, they were free. They were free to go. You're free to leave. Go away. But if you're going to stay here, it's a privilege. We're going to give you that privilege, but you're going to be a citizen of the United States Incorporated. But they left the word incorporated off. You're a citizen of the United States. Now, that was the first generation. All those black folks that were born after that were full, full-blooded citizens, or, or they were um, sovereign inhabitants. So they don't teach people that today. They think they're still... Uh, 14th Amendment citizens of the United States, and they're not. There's very few citizens. All the people that work for government are citizen persons because all those codes, titles, manuals, rules, regulations, ordinances, they talk about all persons. All persons who? All persons who do this, all persons who do that. That's not me. I'm not a person. Don't call me a person. I'm not a good person. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a person. A person is a corporation. A corporation can sue and be sued as a person. So do you see how they've tricked us all into thinking that we're, we're persons? Well, there's a law that says, for instance, I haven't had a driver's license in about 35 years. I'm not trying to get anybody to follow my footsteps. I'm just telling you I practice what I preach. Well, California Vehicle Code 12,500A says all persons, who drive a motor vehicle shall be licensed. I'm all for that. Uh Don't call me a person. I don't drive anything. I don't operate anything. Those are commercial terms. I travel. I'm a human who travels. My automobile is not a motor vehicle, so I'm a human that travels in my automobile. I'm not a person who drives a motor vehicle. See how important words and their meanings are. I use my right-of-way. I own every road in America as a right-of-way. Now, if you're going to go drive a UPS truck, I want you licensed. You're using my right-of-way as your place of business. You're in commerce. I'm not in commerce. I haven't been in commerce for years. So I don't have to be regulated or taxed for my commercial activity because I don't see it's the activity. Now, I, my automobile is licensed just to keep them from messing with me all the time. I've got bigger fish to fry. I don't want to be sitting by the side of the road and 
trying to train an officer, you know, every other day. So I have my 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 automobile license. It is commerce ready. It's not under the vehicle code until I enter into the activity. I put a cab sign on the top and I start picking up right now. I've got the activity. The car's already licensed. It's in it's commerce ready, but it's not in commerce right now. It's the activity plus the license that puts you under that law. Well, if you're not under that law, where are you? You're above it. See, nobody wants to hear somebody say above the law, but wait a minute, Your Honor. Are you under the Harbor Navigation Code ever? It's a law. No, not until you enter into the activity. See, even even judges are above a lot of the law. You're only under a law when you enter into the regulated activity with a license. Now, how do you get a license? You have to apply for it. That's a contract. Under the American laws of contracts, you have to you have to be informed of all obligations, duties, and responsibilities associated with that contract. If you don't have full disclosure of that, that's a voidable contract. Now then, you also have to have a valuable consideration paid of one dollar of silver. As we said before, the term dollar is a term of weight or measure, like ounce, pound, or ton. You can have an ounce of gold, a pound of butter, a ton of hay, or a dollar of silver. The term dollar is a very precise weight, by the way. It's 371 and four sixteenths of a grain of wheat. That's a dollar. If it's if it's put into a 0.999 fine silver pressed into the shape of a coin with a certain edge. So we don't have dollars anymore, not at the corner bank. So you, you don't have to pay any judgment or fine. I've gotten rid of how many? A lot of judgments. Uh, I got rid of, of, of a really bad uh, small claims court judgment from my own father. We made an offer to pay. $5,000, send it to the judge. See, California government code is 6850, and most all states have a money of account. If they don't, it's okay, because the United States has a money of account founded according to the Act of April 2, 1792. It's never been changed. According to the Act of 1965, it says specifically, this does not change the definition of a dollar. It added... It, it added uh, clad coins. It's still dealing with coins, but not dollars. So all we did was I sent with, uh, and see it says the money of account of the state of California and all corporate cities. Yes, I like that. It says that all corporate cities. So I don't deal with it. any of the parties. We deal with the judge. The judge issued the order that this guy owed five thousand dollars. So we say, gee, I want to get this cleared up. I'm a good guy. I want to get this paid. I just don't know what you're requiring of me. I know you will accept Federal Reserve notes and credit card money and checkbook money, but I'm not asking what you will accept or may take. I'm asking what do you require, number one. Number two, and by what authority can you require that? And just so they don't say we're getting and pay and so then the third question is, and do you require everybody that goes through your court to pay them that, or are you discriminating against me for my knowledge? Guess what? They do not answer. Well, that just shoots the whole thing down, because in the offer to pay, we show them a bunch of uniform commercial codes that say, basically, if you default, that causes discharge. So I owed... $5,000 pursuant to your ruling, 
until you defaulted. Now you defaulted on a discharge. I don't owe you anything. I've gotten rid of a $186,000 Superior Court judgment, a $50,000 Superior Court judgment, a couple of $20,000 Superior Court judgments, a $1.8 million bankruptcy court judgment. They're bound by the claims after April 2, if anybody is. All these judges default. They don't know how to answer. In fact, there is no way they can answer. We put them in the we-can't-do-it box. And so that that causes, we by using their laws against them, it's to our advantage. Next well, question. We got, we got another question on the board here. Thank you, Bob. You ready, Bob? Yeah. Okay. Uh, East Maryland, when your phone unmutes, it's your turn. Go ahead. Hi, Mr. Schaefer. How are you doing tonight? I am excellent and getting better. Okay, great. I heard you talk about the um, promissory note, once it's been securitized, that it should have been destroyed. Can you tell me where that is exactly? Yeah, just in that. FAS 140 says that. That's a very long law. You'll have to look for it. FAS 140. When they when they securitize the promissory note, they have to destroy it. And if they don't, that's a crime. They just committed a crime. So when you offer to pay that and you say, I want to know where I can come with my legal tender cash, they don't want cash. They want certified funds. They want uh, money orders and bankers' notes and all that kind of stuff. Wait a minute. We have In America, we have legal tender laws where they force you to take legal tender. So... We want to know where we're going to bring our legal tender cash so we can retrieve our promissory note that they don't have. So they default right there. See, everything I do is a setup. I put, I put them in a little box they can't get out of. They can't answer that question. They can't tell me where I can bring my legal tender cash to retrieve my promissory note. Well, if I borrowed $10 from you and I actually gave you an IOU, wouldn't I want that? that I owe you back. I mean, you could bring that up to my attention 20 years from now and say, hey, Bob, you never, you never paid me that uh, $10 that you brought. Here's the evidence of the debt. Well, sure I did. Well, that's why you want to get it back so it doesn't come back and bite you later. They cannot deliver it. And by the way, as soon as they separate the promissory note that they do all the time from the deed of trust, that deed of trust becomes valueless for foreclosure purposes. It's not securing anything anymore. It did at one time. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. This is a land patent issue. When you got your, you bought your house, the, the seller gave you a grant deed. There's all kinds of deeds. This is a grant deed. They, they took it and put it out of their name, put it in your name. Now, for a few minutes, you have the same sovereign allodial land ownership rights, title, interest, estate, use, and control that the former owner got, and he got it from the former owner, and he got it from the former owner, and they got it from the United States government with the United States land patent. So now, here you are, you have the sovereign allodial title. Nobody can step foot on your land, but you now you need that money. So you sign a, a, a deed of trust. That's another deed. What did you just do that nobody told you you did? You just gave that sovereign allodial land ownership to the bank. But then that's okay because they're going to give it back to you through their greed. 
So within a few weeks, they're going to sell it. Why would they sell it? They just created it where they can make money. Every time there's a sale, money is to be made. They sell it and they can securitize it and they put it on the stock exchange. It is forever a stock. It's traded all over the world. The minute they separate it from the deed of trust, that deed of trust becomes worthless and the sovereign colonial title reverts back to you as a matter of law. Now you can you can bring up the land patent issue and point out that wait, they don't have it anymore. They got greedy and they they've got a money making thing going here, and I have my sovereign colonial title back. You see, the founding fathers did a wonderful thing for themselves. Maybe they were a bunch of rich white slave owners, but they created a government for themselves. We can get in on that. They didn't create a government that would come back and bite them and tax them and control them. We created a government. And everybody that worked for the government had to had to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow the the Constitution, which was nothing more than a plan to build a government of service to the sovereign people. So now here we are claiming, well, I'm one of those sovereign people. They don't want to hear that. How can I control you? One attorney, I'm, I'm helping another man. Uh, the attorney says, well, if the bunch Schaefer says it's true, then the county won't be able to control people as you know, they should. And my answer to that is, hey, you got it. Congratulations. You hit the nail on the head. You have no authority to talk to me. You cannot set foot on my land. I'm one of the sovereign people, and my land is sovereign. You work for me. Next question. Sorry about that noise, Bob. Um, I don't think anybody else has their hand raised. I'll ask one more time. If anybody's got any questions, hit star 8 on your phone, and we'll call on you. I um. Did you say FAS or what are you saying um, to look that up? FAS is like Frank America uh, Senator. FAS 140. FAS stands for something. It's federal. Uh, I, I don't have that on the tip of my tongue. John Gorlitz knows what that is. John, are you there? Can you uh, say what FAS stands for? He might not be, be on the line. Anyway, it's it's um, it's used all the time. It's it's like FBI. I mean, everybody in, in the government and, and courts know what FAS one forty is. But that's where that's where that is found. That it's it's a it's a crime to not destroy it. But that's where that's where that is found. That it's a it's a crime to not destroy it. Okay, there we go. All right. Well, any more questions? Yeah, I have another question. Um, okay. If debt has been discharged in bankruptcy, can you do a replevance to get your, your note back? I, I need you to say that, Floor. If your debt has been discharged in bankruptcy, can you do a replevance to get your note promissory note back? They don't have your promissory note. Remember, we just talked about they just, destroyed it, but you can sure ask and let them tell you we can't, we don't have it. There's okay. your evidence. Get it. Get everything in writing. By the way, there's an old maxim of law that says if it didn't happen in writing, it didn't happen. So you, all, you don't ever talk to anybody. Put everything in writing and make them respond in writing. 
And also, if a person's home been foreclosed, can they also try to request to get their note back? Because they shouldn't be able to have both. Right. Well, everybody can ask you for anything. So let them ask and then nail them if they do. And if they come up with it, like some, there are some uh, entities that really do have that original note. Well, there you go to the, to the district attorney and say that a crime has been committed. I demand that you prosecute this crime. These people say they have a promissory note, the original. Sure, they'll send you a copy. We don't want a copy. We want to see the original. And they don't have it. And if they do, they've committed a crime. But the bottom, bottom line is they separated it. It's called bifurcation. It's been separated when it was securitized and made into a stock, which leaves your your deed of trust worthless for, for foreclosure. But do the courts foreclose on worthless deeds of trust? Every day, hundreds of times. They're either demonstrating their ignorance or they know what they're doing. And they're, you see, their retirement is invested in mortgage-backed securities. So they want you to pay your your house payment so that their retirement doesn't suffer. In other words, this is a conflict of interest. Yeah, no. I'm here in Maryland, and what they do is say, look, Your Honor, we have the note. We're the note holder. And That's what the- they say, but you got to have them prove it. Not That's- in Maryland. They won't. <laughs> you can't make them prove it. Your, your, your Honor, what this attorney or one pretending to be an attorney just said is, is hearsay. I demand that the court see the original and just not take his word for it. I demand that. On the record, I demand that. Okay. Don't tell me that you have something. Show it to me. Okay. You've got to take the reins. You've got to be in charge. Hopefully, that's you get a little knowledge. When you get that. some knowledge behind it, between your ears, you can go into court and stand up like a man or a woman and make demands. Hey, Bob, we got another uh, caller, another answer, another answer, another hand raised. Somebody's got another question here. You ready? Sure. Okay, California, your turn. Go ahead. Okay, Bob, I got a quick question for you. What is the, what is the, I've been unable to find the case authority regarding um, when there's a procedural defect that that voids everything. You're you're unable to find, what did you say? I'm looking for case authority for that. Yeah, when there's a procedural defect, if there's a procedural defect by a government actor in anything that they're doing against you, then that voids everything else, kind of like fruit of the poisonous tree. That well, that's, a, that's an allegation you take before the judge and let him make that decision. To the, to the judge, I don't ever call him your honor anymore because uh, I'm, okay. I've seen so much stuff that they're not not honorable anymore. 
um, I'll just say, sir or ma'am, the allegation is thus and such. And um, I understand that's just hearsay until actual proof is filed before this honorable court. So I respectfully demand that uh, such proof is presented so the judge can see exactly what the truth truth is and not rely on uh, on hearsay evidence until until the real deal is, is presented in the court record uh it's just hearsay and i don't and i re, i uh, i require that the court uh see the real real evidence and i object to any uh the court assuming anything this is not a court of assumption. This this is a court of record, and I want to see it. I demand it. See, the word demand doesn't necessarily mean at the top of your lawyer counting the table. If you were to if you were to pay off a loan through escrow, they'll submit a demand letter. It's just stronger than request. Nobody's angry. Nobody's raising their voice. So I respectfully demand this, and I respectfully demand that, and it's a demand, bro. And it doesn't give any jurisdiction like a motion, petition, application, or request does. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Dang it. Uh-huh. Okay, Bob, we've got somebody from Oregon. Oregon, you're next. Hi, Chad. Hey. Jennifer here. Hey there. Hello, Bob. Hello. Okay, so I have a pretty, I think, simple question, and I'm sorry that it doesn't have anything to do with court, but I've been waiting to ask you. You say that you're a native inhabitant of the California Republic and under the original California Constitution. How do you No, 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 wait a minute. I am protected by it. Oh, I'm not under I'm not under any constitution. There's no contract that would put me under. But I am protected on it because I'm gonna hold those guys that work for that constitution to their to their oath of office. So I no, I, I am a sovereign native inhabitant, but I'm not a citizen of anything. There's no there's no American law that says you have to be a citizen. Okay. But you see Back in 1849, uh, the United States Army sent General Kearney to California to get the sovereign inhabitants together to use a little of their sovereignty to create a constitution to build a state government. It's a plan. That's why they called. They were they drafted. You know, I was a draftsman for many years. As a, besides being a general contractor, I drafted plans. That's why they use the term draft the, the framers. <laughs> the framers. I'm a, I'm a, you know, a general contractor. I've hired a lot of framers. So the framers of the Constitution drafted a plan. The plan is not the building, and the building is not the plan. You can store the plan in the building after it's built, but they're separate. There is no piece of paper or any other evidence you can hold up and say this is the state of California. This is the plan to build the state of California. The state of California exists in our minds. I get you on that. Okay, so so if oh here's my problem. I want to I want to distinguish myself from being a citizen of the United States. So 
I'm being told that referring to myself as an American national is okay. Yes, it is. Is it? Yes. Okay. So if I were to refer to myself as, and here's a different one. How about an American state citizen on the land of the Oregon state? No, a state citizenship has obligations, duties, and responsibilities. All right. Now, there are, there are some state citizens. They're not citizens of the United States, but they work for the state. So there's a difference between a state citizen and a citizen of the United States. Great. But I, I, citizenship is nothing I want. That's a burden. I'm above all that. All right. You guys that work for me are citizens. You place yourself there with a contract. And how about this one? How about if I were born in Ohio and now I'm living in Oregon? Can, would I refer to myself as, uh, well, let's see, where was I? Uh, <clears throat> you are a native. You are a native of Ohio. You're not a native of Oregon. Right. But you, they, you can carry you can carry your sovereignty wherever you go. Okay. Now those those, those guys that wrote up the California Constitution from General Kearney's uh, request, they used some of their sovereignty. It's called eclipsed sovereignty. Like when you go, a man goes to the barber, they clip off some of his sovereignty, and they use some of that eclipsed sovereignty to create a government. But like there's an old saying that says, a fountain cannot rise higher than its source. In government, the source of sovereignty is the people. And there's all kinds of case law. I know, I know, I know, I know there's all kinds of people that say, oh, you're, you're not a sovereign. The state is a sovereign. Well, the state is a sovereign, but its sovereignty is below your sovereignty. So you can move your sovereignty wherever you go, you're sovereign. But you're not a native there. You're right. a native only in one place. But you can be a sovereign inhabitant anywhere. Ah. But don't ever call yourself a resident. I don't live in a residence. I'm not a resident. And I don't reside anywhere. I live or I'm domiciled. A domicile is where you're going to go home at night and sleep. A residence, you don't have to go there all the time. You can have a residence all over the world. You can have five residences. Some people have a residence in Rome, one in Paris, one in New York. You have residences everywhere. Okay, thank it's you. It's a commercial for that. term. Pardon residence me? is a commercial term. Okay, I got that. Um, and one more question: What is sure. the simplest? What is the simplest way to do a public notice? Uh, printed in the uh, in the um, public notice department of your local newspaper. Okay. And it doesn't have to be um, one where everybody reads it either. It can be a little newspaper out in uh, Blythe, California, and that's still in Riverside County. It can be in Natal, California, which is still in San Bernardino County. But it has to be in the notice of a paper that is set up for public notices. There's other ways to give notice. You can post it. You can. I've done this. I've gone into the courthouse 
and uh, they have a bulletin board. I just post it. I know they're going to take it down as soon as they see it, but I post it and take a picture of it and leave. You can post it on the post office. It's, it has to be. A, it has to be a public building. Okay. And then you document it. You photograph it, and you get a witness to say, "I saw her uh, post this on uh, the post office over there in this town." And by the way, recording, recording in a hall of records. You you don't have to record stuff in the county where the where uh, where the land is. Although it's better, it's better. I'll admit that it's better. But when something is recorded, it's called notice to the whole world. You just—it's called constructive notice. It's not actual notice, but it's one of the notices. It's called constructive notice. So uh, I did some constructive notice by by recording this at the Hall of Records. Now I've I've given constructive notice to everybody in Russia and China and Berlin and everywhere. It's constructive notice. Where is the Hall of Records? Well, it's usually near near the uh, a county building. Uh, oh. It might be in it might be in a county building. In Riverside, they have a huge, beautiful. It's an awesomely beautiful administration building, and it's got the Hall of Records in it. The Board of Supervisors meets there. Code enforcement meets there. You go there to get get um, permits for. Um, studying uh, manufactured housing, which I've done a lot of. San Bernardino okay. County has a big administrative law building. It's quite ugly by comparison. <laughs> okay, well, those are my questions, and you've answered them great. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, and good night. Good I'll night get off you. now and go back to listening. <clears throat> Thanks, Cat. Uh, you bet. All right. Well, um, Bob, I think that's it. Okay. I think that's it. So, everybody, um, <clears throat> hey, if you want to work with Bob, go to youhavetheright.com and look on the right-hand side for now on the uh, little banner ads that say Lamb Patents with Bob Schaefer, John Gorla, or you can contact me, and we'll put you in touch. <clears throat> so, because they do offer coaching. All right, well, everybody, thank you very much for joining, and Bob, thank you, and we'll see you again next week. Right. Good night. Good night, everybody.